Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. This week, we're talking about one of America's favorite genres, cop movies. The Brooklyn Academy of Music recently screened a series of films called Watch the Cops, Policing New York in the Movies. The program was curated by the scholar Pooja Rangan and the filmmaker Brett Story, and it included a small but very eclectic range of films. Among them were big-budget genre films like Copland and Dog Day Afternoon, which show how ambivalence about policing is often resolved in pop culture. There was also the -the behind-the-scenes documentary Making Do the Right Thing, which offered a glimpse into the making of the Spike Lee classic and how movie-making impacts local communities. Another highlight was the rousing docu-fictional activist film The Torture of Mothers, The Case of Harlem Six, about racism and police brutality. Brett and Pooja joined us to discuss the thinking behind their selections and walked us through the thought-provoking ideas underpinning the program. Though the series is over now, we've included links to many of the movies on our show page. Check them out, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm really excited about today's conversation. We have two special guests who I don't think we've had on the podcast before, but who Clint and I have admired for a long time for their work, uh, their writing, as well as work in other fields. And we're just thrilled to have them here today to talk about a really fascinating and sort of ever-relevant topic. I'm going to ask our guests to introduce themselves. Uh, Pooja, you want to go first? Um, Sure. Thanks, Devika, for having us on. And thanks, Clint. Um, I'm Pooja Rangan. Um, I'm a documentary scholar. I teach um, film and media studies in the English department at Amherst College. Um, I wrote a book that some people may have read called Immediations, the Humanitarian Impulse in Documentary. Um, I've been working for a while now with Brett on a project um, on abolition and documentary, um, which also led to this um, program that we're here to talk, talk to you about. And I'm working on a new book on documentary and listening called The Documentary Audit, as an A-U-D-I-T. Hi, everyone. I'm Brett Story. Um, It's really great to be on the podcast. I love this podcast. So thanks for having us on. Um, I'm a documentary filmmaker um, based between Toronto and New York. Um, I've made a few films, but um, the one that's sort of most central to today's conversation is a film I made in 2016 called The Prison in 12 Landscapes, um, which is a, a vignette structured film that explores the reach and consequences of the U.S. prison system without showing a single um, actual penitentiary. Um, I also write and I teach um, and I have been thinking alongside Pooja around the question of how our media sees and represents police and prisons and what that what effect that has in our on our sort of cultural and social understanding of these institutions. We will link Brett and Pooja's works. I mean, there's a lot, but we'll link some of our choice picks in the show notes. So if you're curious, you should definitely check out Brett's films, writings, and Pooja's writings as well. What brought us to uh, invite you on was this series that you guys have programmed at BAM, Watch the Cops Policing New York in the Movies. It's It'll be over by the time this podcast is live, but as Devika mentioned, we will be able to link to a lot of the films 
because a lot of them have circulated in kind of samizdat form and still kind of exist in various corners of the internet. And so this series is really fascinating because you've uncovered them, brought them back to, brought them into conversation with each other. And um, I guess the first question is just simply, uh, maybe you could talk us through a little bit the origin of this series, what inspired it, and uh, the title. Um, sure, I can start, and then maybe Brett can take it from there. Um, we were we were contacted by actually a college friend of mine who I hadn't seen in a while, and who I ran into at the dog park <laughs> in Brooklyn in a classic classic New York fashion. Yeah, as it as it happens to all of us. <laughs> yeah, we reconnected, and she had reached out to me. You know, we we'd, we'd caught up on what we'd been working on and so forth. And she reached out, and she she had she's a volunteer at Interference Archive, which some of you may know, which is an incredible um, Brooklyn institution. And um, she'd been working for a while on an exhibition um, called Defund, Defend, uh, which looks at resistance to police and police brutality in the 20th and 21st centuries in the U.S. And she was looking for someone to organize a film series that would in some way animate the themes of the exhibition and the book that is um, that actually has just opened at Interference earlier this um, month. And, um, and, you know, I said, me, <laughs> me and my friend Brett, <laughs> we, would, we would like to do that. Um, and, you know, Brett and I had been doing a project for a while on true crime and documentary. So I think that was what um, drew Brooke to our work and, and um, made her think that we might be someone who might be able to suggest something for this series. Um, and so that's how we got involved with this program. Yeah, and I'll just add that, you know, Pooja and I, um, we're not programmers by profession, um, and I certainly have very limited experience programming a series like this, but in part because of this project we've been working on, in part because we had written this piece uh, that came out a couple years ago, sort of thinking critically about true crime, not just as a kind of obvious sort of bad category of media, but as something that's actually evolving. And this piece was in World Records Journal, just so people have some context. Yeah, we'll link to that as well, but it's, it's an excellent piece, yeah. Great, it would be great for people to engage it because part of, you know, certainly what we were interested in is thinking about how the true crime genre was, we were seeing this attempt of, uh, within the true crime genre to reestablish itself as kind of prestige media. And in so doing, roping in a lot of documentary filmmakers who, you know, may think of themselves and do think of themselves as critical, um, offering a critical perspective on the criminal legal system. And it's really, you know, that piece in this project as a whole um, is an opportunity for us to think, you know, Pooja and I, uh, to think in in collaboration with a community of scholars and media makers about how, you know, what what happens when we are, are just immersed um, in a media landscape that is, you know, full of of cop shows and cop movies, and some of them are critical and some of them are not critical, but they're sort of like the air we breathe at this point. And how does that intersect with moments like, like the one we're in right now, ahead of a, a major election in which, you know, it seems like every major um, headline in the New York Times invokes the specter of crime as a justification for this or that. And so this invitation to program a series at BAM was really exciting to us because we thought, okay, we could have fun with this. We can program some, you know, sort of classic cop films, you know, Holly, the, the sort of like usual Hollywood suspects that heroicize police, but also um, maybe bring to the fore some underseen activist um, 
videos and films, artists made videos and films, long form documentaries that also expand our idea of what constitutes the image of policing in, in cinema and in media. I was really fascinated by the breadth of the series, even though it's a short, you know, it's a small program. Um, you just have very eclectic works together. And I was especially interested in how you chose the popular uh, quote unquote film. So you have Copland and Dog Day Afternoon as kind of these big, um, you know, uh, star driven movies. I mean, Copland has everyone. Every scene features like some sort of like major actor appearing yeah. suddenly in like a minor role. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was curious because it's it's such a such an interesting film, but in some ways there are so many films like that, you know, about like the good apple in the bad system or this kind of like the good cop who takes down the corrupt system and changes it from within. And I was curious, like, yeah, how you picked these two from among what I think of as many options for the activist films. I feel like the rationale might be easier. But for these, I was very curious. I mean, I will say that this had something to do with our strategy as programmers and also our strengths <laughs> as um, as a maker and a scholar, um, because we really began with, it's very interesting to me that when you all you know, mentioned the films that you wanted to talk about in this um, um, in this conversation. They were not the films that we started with, because we really started with the three shorts programs as being the pillars or the tent poles of this program. Um, and that was, you know, that there were there were um, you know re that there were reasons having to do with genre, and with our own kind of predilection for an experience with experimental political documentary, activist documentary. These were the films that we wanted to kind of shore up and kind of pick up and and um, and amplify. I can say what those are. So we have three programs. Um, one uh, of shorts. One of them is a program of shorts um, that that highlight various struggles over space because we realized while that while thinking about policing, it is very difficult to extricate policing from questions of space. What happens where and why? Um, you know, because really, like struggles against police are often struggles over who gets to occupy space and who gets to name what that space means. And so we have in the program Happy Birthday, Marsha, which was co-directed by Tourmaline, um, a newsreel film from 1971, which features, you know, the, the Young Lords um, um, direct action programs in Harlem, um, of a film by Paul Guerin, um, which is all about protests and resistance and the fight for housing justice. Um, you know, that's a tentpole of the program. We have another program um, um, of of two films that are really, uh, you know, that that kind of exemplify the real spectrum of conversations around policing in that they are reform films. Um, one of them is an episode of the landmark broadcast program, WNET program, Black Journal, which was co-hosted by William Graves, um, a real pioneer of Black film. Um, and that's a roundtable conversation among four Black police who really represent, again, a spectrum of positions um, um, with regard to reform and abolition. And uh, uh, a police training film that George Stoney made 
um, in, co- in collaboration with the New York Police Academy. So that's another program. And, um, and a third shorts program, which was really the program that we tried to highlight. We had a panel on it the second day of our program, um, featured a film by, um, you know, a, a pioneer of the Black arts movement, Woody King Jr., um, who was involved with the Henry Street settlement in the Lower East Side and founded the New Federal Theater, um, made this film, um, which which I think one of you mentioned, The Torture of Mothers, The Case of Harlem Six. And that plays alongside um, a film um, about the persecution of Martin Sostre, um, who's a, a Black revolutionary and who, who um, was the owner of a radical leftist Afro-Asian bookstore in Buffalo, New York. So these were the films that really, for us, mapped a kind of um, another story about policing. As, as Brett said, you know, we wanted to maybe use this this program is an opportunity to tell a different kind of story about policing than the one that tends to play out on Hollywood screens. As you mentioned, there are so many movies that we really had a glut of choices to choose from because in some ways, um, you know, maybe one kind of provocation we can think think of is that every film is a cop film in some way or another because it is the genre par excellence of our times. And certainly every New York film is a cop film. And so we really thought, you know, this is a program that, lets us perhaps tell a story also of the media and the cultural organizations that have been the space that has um, trained people, provided a kind of media literacy, um, provided a space for films to live, to circulate that really are movement films and are movement films against police. And that's those were the real props of the program. So when it came to the feature films, it was really about trying to ask what could... Um, be interesting parallels or tell a different element of the story or um, exemplify how Hollywood was picking up on some of these um, pressures and pushes of social movements and giving them space, but also taking space away from them. Um, and so th- those were some of the questions we were asking in programming the the bigger, um, big budget Hollywood films that you named. Uh, maybe I'll toss it to Brett now. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it's interesting. You can, in many ways, Copland is like, I mean, it's this quintessential 90s New York police film, but it's also a, a movie about space, right? Like part part of the sort of like narrative um, uh, premise of the film is that there's like an entire town in New Jersey that's just sort of been occupied by the NYPD. Um, and then there's, you know, there's this sheriff played by Sylvester Stallone, who's like, unable because of a disability to to actually join the NYPD. And so he's sort of, um, you know, been sidelined as the sheriff of this little town that he doesn't have real control over because the NYPD has made it their own their own sort of um, small, small, small colony in a way. And it's just it's in there's so much to that film that's that's interesting, even while it also presents as a totally conventional and actually pretty fun narrative. If you just want to go see like a fun cop movie with with all of these amazing people um, doing cameos and Sylvester Stallone in this like sort of sad, soft role that he's actually really remarkable in. And for me, one of the things that was really striking about Copland is that it 
it feels very 1990s in that there's the kernel of sort of police critique within it, and yet it recuperates itself. So again, part of the premise of that film is that like cops are bad, (laughs) you know, cops are racist, and they shoot people and then try and cover it up. It's like the assumption from the beginning, really. Right? I mean, the film is very blunt about that, uh, which did take me by surprise a little bit. The cops, other than Sylvester Stallone, who's like this, I don't know, I wouldn't say goofy, but there's something very naive about him, I guess. And Robert De Niro, who's like this voice of justice. But the others are scumbags. I mean, the movie just makes them out to be utter, you know, self-serving scumbags. They are, you know, clearly presented as racist. I mean, one the inciting incident of the movie is this sort of rookie cop shooting a couple, you know, black teens who are um, driving a car and who point this like a piece of metal at him that he thinks is a gun. And and I mean, uh, you know, there's no ambiguity there about the fact that these cops are racist. I mean, among, among the many cameos are basically the entire cast of The Sopranos as like cops. So, I mean, this is kind of the idea is like the cops here from the beginning, you're immediately like, oh, they're, they're basically criminal. You know, this is a criminal organization that's like behaving like one. Yeah, as I was watching it, I was thinking, like, what do these movies appeal to? And I mean, there is a lot of, like, style and, and you know, just this good versus bad and then shades of gray stuff and all those twists and the suspense and not being able to tell if um, someone is the good guy or the bad guy, all of that just sort of plot mechanics. But at the end of the day, it is so comforting to be reminded that all it takes is one good guy. Like as long as there's one upstanding person, justice will be served. And that's so powerfully alluring, you know, you know that that message. It is powerfully alluring. I mean, in this way, that's really, I think, quite, quite dangerous. I mean, I think that that's why it's really interesting to put, you know, it was really important for us to not just put these sort of activist and critical films and videos um, together for the program, but put them in conversation with sort of more mainstream depictions that are, that are complex, but actually not so complex, you know, Um, I mean, there's even one other thing to mention about the, the way in which most of these NYPD officers are depicted as totally racist is that, yeah, they shoot these two black teenagers who are unarmed, but the black teenagers are still depicted as thugs, right? Like we're still like, there's a sort of like acknowledgement of the critique while also doubling down on the sort of the, um, the, the, the driving race, you know, racist cliches that inform most of our sort of thinking about like, you know, cops being in danger and having to shoot people in self-defense and Stallone is presented as this like great hero whose whose ultimate goal of becoming the super cop is realized in the end and he like he rises above all the other bad cops who are unable to you know be as pure I mean the other thing to say about Copland is that it's also a movie uh it, it there's another very kind of conventional story that it rehearses which is the overcoming of disability and you know that's that's and in a, in a way it is his disability that calls forth this entire narrative which is another kind of classic way of approaching narrative and i think that's something interesting about seeing this film alongside um, these other programs which really offer different kinds of visions of solidarity. So with the Martin Sostre film, you know, he, he ran an Afro-Asian radical bookstore. Um, we have another film um, that was playing um, the first night, which is Stephanie Wangbriel's Blowing Up, which is, I think, another kind of instance of 
a complicated example of um, Afro-Asian solidarity, a kind of decarceral vision of Afro-Asian solidarity. And so I think like when you when you watch films like that and, and think of them as a kind of lens to refract a reading of a film like Copland, um, I think it's possible to read the film against its grain as a kind of, of solidarity and a, a set of actions that are possible for Stallone because of his disability and because of its kind, because of his marginality to the institution of police. But I think that you have to work hard <laughs> against the logic of the film to do that. I just want to say in response to Brett's point, yes, you know, even despite its critique, the Black characters are presented as thugs. And the most egregious example of that is Method Man being in this movie for one scene. I didn't even notice that, I don't think. He, I believe he's the guy on the roof, right? Who, yeah, oh, because I, okay. I was looking up every actor as they appeared because wow. they all were familiar. And he has like one scene where his, you know, his role is just to kind of shake up this cop and... <laughs> Almost, he's just trying to kill, he's like some sort of unhinged cop-killing maniac. Yeah, um, (laughs) I guess there is an, there's an implication that he may be planted, but I was like, you bring Method Man into this movie (laughs) and that's it, he walks in, does this part and walks out. I mean, if it, if it helps, Method Man is credited as rooftop perp. So I think that tells you pretty much all you need to know about that casting decision. But you know what, there's something interesting too about tracing some of these actors because something I don't think that we had planned, but now we can see having programmed this series is that there's actually some real through lines in terms of actors that appear in multiple works and also crew that have have collaborated in different ways. So the most obvious example is the legendary actress Ruby D, who's most maybe most known to people. Um, from Spike Lee's film Do the Right Thing and therefore appears in this documentary we're showing on the making of Do the Right Thing by St. Clair Bourne. But she also is one of the actresses and a really totally riveting, playing a, a you know, a, a, in a riveting role, playing one of the the mothers in um, in uh, The Torture of Mothers and is just part of this community of people that I think are associated with, a, you know, a New York scene I think different generations come to these movies <laughs> and they mean different things for them. So, you know, Do the Right Thing holds a certain nostalgia for people of my generation. And Ruby D was al- already, you know, like this was one of her later roles. She was like an elder stateswoman by the time she appears in Do the Right Thing. But other people who are older know her from Raisin in the Sun. And I think, you know, at the time that um, Woody, Woody King Jr. makes um, Torture of Mothers, you know, she's a repertory actress and she's part of his roster of people that he can call up and say, hey, you know, I can give you 250 bucks for this. Will you come and do this film with me? Will you read these testimonies of these actual women? Um, because that's what the film is. It's, it's in fact, um, a docu-fiction, a docu-drama, which is composed of um, actual testimonies of the mothers of these six um, Harlem teens who were framed and brutally beaten by um, white cops in Harlem for really no good reason other than that they happened to be there and they happened to run uh, a rooftop. Speaking of rooftop perp, they used to run uh, a rooftop pigeon, um, a neighborhood uh, pigeon rescue. And so they were pigeon, um, um, what, what is the word that I'm looking for? 
uh, pigeon enthusiasts. And anything that happened on prisons from the perspective Wait, of police was... is that an official was, term? A pigeon was, enthusiast? <laughs> I don't know. I, think, I thought you were looking Pooja, for you some sort other of, more you, you obscure term. You for that term as if yeah. you were like, what's the official term for this? A pigeon <laughs> <Pigeoneers>. enthusiast. <laughs> they, they were pigeoneers and um, pigeon yeah. keepers. Pigeon fanciers is the word that I was looking for. <laughs> People who breed pigeons. But anything uh-huh. that took place in a roof from their perspective of the, of the police was regarded as outlaw activity. Yeah. And so there's you know um there's all kinds of 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 themes notions people um crisscrossing this program we wanted to talk about the making of do the right thing because it's interesting that cops don't actually appear in the movie except for maybe like one or two and there's a moment i think early on where a production assistant says if anybody bothers you or comes on set immediately call the cops i think early on which is sort of the only mention i yeah i i was i also wanted to pick up on on that thread which is that i find that movie really fascinating because of how you're challenging what a cop movie is and this ambient presence of cops uh that scene that clint is referencing i believe that someone like pretends to be on Spike's crew and get into a woman's house and she's told to call the cops if that happens. But there are other references to about the security needed to pull off a film shoot in the city. And I, so it's not just about like the presence of the police in an urban environment, but the the way in which filmmaking is often like... um, woven in with security apparatuses, you know, urban security systems. And I I really was so struck by the film because a few weeks ago, or last month at the New York Film Festival, um, we had Colleen Smith uh, deliver the Amos Vogel lecture. Um, and she said this remarkable thing in a, in a Q&A with Jacqueline Stewart, where she said that all you need to do to tell an entire neighborhood of people how to live their lives is get a permit from the city to make a film. And she said, you know, how violent the act of filmmaking can be environmentally, physically, you know, economically, and that that is always on top of her mind when she's shooting. And I thought that that theme was brought up so um, brilliantly in this film. I mean, there are residents in in of Bed-Stuy in, a, you know, in making of Do the Right Thing who's, who are complaining about the extent to which the shoot has disrupted their lives and whether and they are skeptical of whether making a film, you know, authentically in Bed-Stuy, even one that recruits locals and little jobs, has any enduring impact on the needs of the neighborhood. Um, So I just wanted to bring up that amazing uh, tidbit that Colleen had shared, which I thought this movie was just illustrating. Yeah, that's such an interesting thing to think about. I mean, the, the, the origins of that, the decision to bring that film into this program, I mean, a few things. One is that, you know, sort of earliest brainstorming period, we're sort of collecting ideas for what could be part of this series. And the sort of, you know, quintessential you know in one way a quintessential uh film that's about that's a fiction film that's critical of policing and neighborhood is spike lee's do the right thing so there was a moment in which we thought about showing that including that film in this program but we wanted to push against the obvious even while also flirting with it in, in movies like copland and um, I had seen, you know, this this really remarkable film by the just absolutely 
um, legendary filmmaker, um, St. Clair Bourne. Um, and one of the things that had struck me about this behind the scenes documentary about making Do the Right Thing is that the, 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 the filming of that, of that movie becomes a staging ground for a documentary inquiry into some of the themes invoked in Spike Lee's um, version, i.e., you know, the meaning of neighborhood, gentrification, and race relations. So one of the things that happens in the documentary is that a number of the actors, but also community members who are recruited in various roles to be part of the, the, the crew, are asked questions about their relationships to, um, you know, like their understandings of of um, Italian identity, white identity, black identity, and there's also I think this open question about like how you can stitch a community together or or do something like make center a a, a film in a neighborhood that is just on the cusp of of change, right? This is you know do the right thing was what was it 1988. So we're really sort of in the sort of proto gentrification period of gentr of of um, that you know that's totally transformed neighborhoods like Bed Stuy, and um, and there's all sorts of abandonment of that neighborhood um, uh, in 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 terms of sort of economic divestment, um, and a, an attempt by you know an independent black filmmaker to sort of do right by the community. But is that even possible for all the reasons that you say, Devika, in terms of like, you know, just the total disruption of community life, the amount of security, getting city permits and so on. And so it's just interesting, I think, that like this, the, the St. Clair Bourne version of the film, the documentary version, kind of does two things at once. It gives you this just really fun behind the scenes of the making of this movie and the consequences for this neighborhood, um, but also uses that as a staging ground to ask the same kinds of political questions that are asked in very different ways by the by the fiction film. There's that moment where the uh, old, like that group, the three old men are talking about the uh, Korean grocery store that's opened up, and they they say like it's just popped up really fast. Like well, how did they even, how did this even happen? And it's just like, and it, it, the whole scene is allowed to play out in the documentary. But then at the end of the film, you see them dismantling Sal's Pizzeria and just and just basically like wiping clean all the presence of the film of the uh, of the film crew in the same way. They're just kind of they came, they built a bunch of stuff, they threw a block party, and then they they got out and you know the i think that they yeah so they're also portrayed as trying to do right by the community for sure but there's this this element of it's it's impossible for to make this film without kind of coming in setting up shop disrupting people's lives and leaving it raises questions of authenticity too because so much emphasis in making of do the right thing uh in the initial interviews is we had to shoot in Bed-Stuy. You know, we couldn't have done this on a studio lot. It has to be done here. It has to be properly represented. Um, and I, I think that that's an in um, interesting tension there between this desire to represent authentically, have authentic extras, all of that, like have locations that look lived in. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, however authentic it may be, it is a film that is sort of coming and then leaving. So I, I thought that that was something it, it brought up that, you know, applies even today and it applies more broadly to depictions of policing, but also, you know, community and um, social structures, just thinking about how filmmaking 
in trying to represent them accurately can actually change them sometimes for the good and sometimes for the bad. I mean, this is completely not really related, but it reminded me, um, there's this book by the scholar Priya Jaikumar called Where Histories Reside, where she talks about Renoir's The River being shot in India and how they're like an entire fake village was built in order to shoot it with like these fake little houses. And then people actually lived in them. I mean, they persisted as real artifacts that people like used uh, in their daily lives. And I thought that that's an interesting inverse of Clint, what you're describing, you know, and there are all these ways in which filmmaking actually very much materially can intervene in the reality of the people. They also talk about Bedsty as if it's like, you know, a war zone of so- or something where there are outsiders who have come to occupy it. It's just sort of, that's just sort of strange tension in the film it's a really it's a really really cool movie <laughs> and thank you for bringing it to our attention you're listening to the film comment podcast sign up today for the film comment letter it's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by film comments editors and brilliant contributors the letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned um, uh, Priya Jankumar's book, Devikami Naked. It also makes me think about entire cities whose whose, you know, subsequent um, uh, economic survival through tourism has been a function of movies that have been shot there. I mean, I'm thinking of, um, you know, the shooting of Octopussy in, um, it's in the lake city of Udaipur. And, um, you know, to this day, if you go to Udaipur, you know, you will see kind of paraphernalia related to um, this obscure and incredibly misogynist, <laughs> misogynistic Bond films strewn across the city. I mean, and one thing that I will just say about making um, Do the Right Thing is I think that you've really kind of um, pinpointed the real complexity of shooting the film, the, the political complexity of shooting the film on location. Because, you know, one thing that we were thinking um, as we were programming this film is, you know, in some ways, in, in a trite way, we, we can think of the antidote to defunding as being investing in community. Um, but even the pathways to doing that by shooting this film on location require mediation by police and by all kinds of police structures. And I think that that's what you've been naming so nicely. Um, but I'll just mention that, you know, there, that the reason that we paired the short with a six minute film that was preserved by um, the amazing Pearl Bowser and which now lives in, um, in the Smithsonian, um, it, which is an untitled Bed-Stuy Youth in Action fashion show, um, which was, um, pre- uh, which was shot by T. Beveridge, Hortense T. Beveridge, um, is that, you know, this was this another instance of a community organized, um, event, which was really a kind of investment in community. And I think that the very story, the preservation history, the story of this film being preserved is another story of disinvestment and reinvestment in community. A film that I saw at Light Industry presented by Ina Archer, who's a frequent film comment um, contributor and who has worked quite a bit on that Pearl Bowser collection, yeah. 
Pooja, could you say a little more about that story of um, disinvestment and reinvestment in, in, in the film's preservation? I mean, what, what is the background? So, um, I mean, I'll tell you a little bit about that film itself, um, which is that it was, um, so, so this Hortense T. Beveridge was the first black woman admitted to the Motion Picture Film Editors Union. And, you know, she made much of her living working on TV commercials. She, she spent her free time on film projects uh, for progressive black organizations and other political causes. And this is a really kind of rare document of community mediated self-presentation from that time. And it is, it is an, it is much like do the right thing, a kind of, um, time capsule of the style and grace of young people in Bed-Stuy. But I think it is also a, a film that comes very organically out of a community run organization that was in fact founded in order to fight poverty um, in, in the neighborhood of Bedstein, which was in fact, which drew a direct line connecting um, pride, fashion, aesthetics, a kind of investment also in fun and joy and everyday life and community to precisely those things that are required in order to have communities that have safety without the need for security, which is another way of saying safety without the need for policing. Yeah, I, and I, maybe I'll just jump in on this point to say, you know, I think one of the consequences of just existing in a media landscape that's completely saturated by cop narratives, like our television shows, I mean, if it's not police, then it's detective, if it's not detectives, it's prosecutors, right? I mean, that's, it's no coincidence that like, then those prosecutors and those cops become our mayors and our, and our presidents. Um, one of the consequences is that like, we don't actually get to see on screen narratively alternatives to the police. So when movements come along that for lots of very valid, important political reasons suggest, hey, we might think about defunding or disinvesting or just not spending so much money to put cops on the streets. There's a kind of like, I think almost like a cultural panic because all we see on our screens are these sort of like the, the, the cops taking up that space. And so what does it look like if the cops aren't there? Well, then we get the kind of lawlessness that's 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 usually the corollary um in a lot of these in a lot of these films. But can you remember that other film that we considered um showing that's just like the dystopian future? I'm talking about Escape from New York. Do you remember that one? I mean, we watched that film and we were considering it for this. And, you know, it, it is just like total lawlessness and like the the like human beings are, are simultaneously rats and they're just like, um, you know, just attacking at each, each other at every corner. And that's sort of what what happens in the imaginary when, you know, the idea of defund or disinvestment is invoked. And it was important for us to think about like, okay, what else are we seeing on our screens that actually might present an alternative in some small way, you know? And I think that that's why this idea of sort of commute communities, people taking care of each other in neighborhood spaces, people taking over resources, like the young Lords taking over the Lincoln hospital and saying like, this is ours. Like, this is this is a, a resource that's necessary for our community to keep each other alive. So we're going to take it over and make it ours. And I think that's the sort of alternative to policing that we also wanted to make sure was being presented in this sort of cinematic survey. This is a point that's made in the torture of mothers too by the mothers, and uh, <laughs> when they talk about the the court appointed uh, 
public defenders just being drunks, not caring, doing it basically for, so that they could rack up more fees. The more the more uh, the more defendants they had. That film, I mean, maybe this is what you're going to get to, but it's, you know, rightfully devastating film depicting, chronicling, you know, this real life story from 1963 and sort of famously, you know, also chronicled in the in the James Baldwin essay, Notes from an Occupied Country, um, and then, you know, and then made into... Um, redepicted in this docu docu narrative drama by Woody King Jr. Torture of Mothers. And the the I mean I I'm sort of just struck in that film by in some ways the simplicity of the dramaturgy. I mean you can tell that Woody King comes from theater because so many of the scenes are actually just the actress playing the mother and the actor playing the son in various sort of beautiful compositions like maybe the mother is in front and the, the boy is in the back or vice versa. And all of the dialogue is comes out of real transcripts from from interviews done with those mothers, and um, on on sort of every beat, they're totally devastating. Including as you know what you just mentioned was, which was the simple fact that like these boys who had nothing to do with this, you know, the the murder that they're accused of were nowhere near it. Um, you know, were were sentenced, convicted, and sentenced anyways, in part because they just couldn't they weren't able to get lawyers. Either they couldn't afford to get lawyers or because they were indigent, they, you know, had this 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 public defender court appointed to them um, and he failed them. As I understand it, they opted to get their own lawyers and have somebody else represent them. And then the judge said that because they were indigent, they were required to have court appointed lawyers. This is what I, I read somewhere when I was reading up on it. So it's even like, it's, it's you know, just... <laughs> no, it's totally um, devastating. Unbelievable. The film depicts a kind of town hall uh, where the mothers and the sons are all together and the mothers, I, I'm, I'm assuming it's sort of like a composited depiction of the interview process. Um, and, you know, you keep cutting to pictures of this tape recorder and, uh, you know, there are, there are statements that are like, let the recorder hear it all, you know, let it all go out there. And... In relation to that, this docudrama aspect of the film I found really interesting because it took me by surprise. Actually, it wasn't until I saw Ruby D that I realized it wasn't documentary. You know, just when I started up the film, I didn't read up about it. And it just mimics that style, like a kind of newsreel-ish or news report-ish style so well. And then I thought, okay, Ruby D obviously isn't one of these mothers. Uh, but the performance styles are also have this interesting tension between being very, very natural, but then being theatrical. And I think what was interesting to me about that is that it kind of forces uh, you to rethink, you know, the codes through which something is presented as true, both in the law and in the media, you know, just like truth is often a matter of just a collection of formal aspects, you know, as opposed to anything more essential than that. Yeah, point driven home by those headlines, the New York Times headlines about uh, roving gangs of trained mur white hating murder, like murderous black children or something, which, which were yeah. New York Times headlines. It's just like, this is just like a, an invention that is perpetuated and spread because it's presented as news, basically. Yeah, there's just a certain tone that immediately confers a kind of legality or truth or objectivity. And the film really picks apart at that, I thought. 
I mean, I think that, um, yeah, the uh, one thing certainly hasn't changed, and that is the New York Times headlines, and it's crime-mongering. But um, the other thing is that I think that, you know, you've really named something that makes this film um, really special in its commitments, but, uh, but also kind of emblematic in its commitments, which is its insistence on Black testimony um, and on Black evidence. And actually, it's naming of Black testimony as a kind of evidence that is never held up under the law, because the law is itself set up in advance to exclude it. Um, and that becomes the very kind of basis of extrajudicial anti-Black violence. And and I think that, you know, you're right that this, this film feels like a town hall, because what it's actually producing is this really kind of powerful sense of Black collectivity. Uh, as a space of a kind of public truth and a naming of that truth over and over again and, and an insistence on community as that which will stand up for you and say, yes, this happened. <laughs> and and it's it's really the kind of insurrection of a different kind of forum. Um, um, and, uh, and I think that, and, and you know, and I, I think about the, the word forum a lot these days because it is the root of forensics, which is a preoccupation of the true crime genre, which is something that we've all been writing about and a mainstay of the cop movie. And I think that this is a movie that says, well, this is also a kind of forensics that is happening here. And what um, LaCharles Ward has been writing about very powerfully is a kind of black evidence. Yeah, and you know, I'll just add too, Clint. I'm glad you brought up those New York Times headlines, um, which you're right. They're they're real New York Times headlines. They're part of the documentary elements that are used by Woody King in in this film. And for me, what was so striking watching rewatching the film the other night in the theater was just how how they didn't feel historical, right? And so we're sort of we talk about about narrative in relation to cinema and relation to fiction cinema, but we can just as well talk about narrative in relation to all of our media. What are the narratives being presented by those headlines? You have to remind yourself you're watching a film about an incident that happened in 1963 because it's easily recognizable as the same exact same language, exact same narrative tropes um, that people will be, you know, will will be thinking about in relation to the story of the Central Park Five um, and the same headlines that we're seeing, you know, right, right, right now in terms of um, the kind of the kind of fear mongering um, that's always weaponized for political for political gain and, and that our media institutions are, you know, unfortunately participating in. I also thought it was interesting that the film, I, I imagine because of when it was made, ends without any sense of resolution the the end you you learn that after i believe several years maybe five years or so um i may not get the number right but it's several years five of the boys are released and one remains in prison facing a life sentence because of a confession that was extracted you know under duress and there is such a sort of somber note to this ending that that struck me because often, you know, the kind of true crime or even fictionalized representations of um, wrongfully incarcerated people, uh, you know, these histories that we see that Pooja and Brett, you guys have written about, they do uphold this idea that if one system fails, there is another one that can serve as the corrective at some point, you know, like democracy will ultimately win if good people keep going at it. If Sylvester Stallone is in the room. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, but even, even like I've been listening to these podcasts about, um, 
Watergate, this podcast series about Watergate and, you know, this this kind of idea that, again, that in response to one rotten arm of the political system, another must function. And if the other functions, then ultimately, you know, our ideals will be preserved. And often the judiciary or the court is presented as that, like, it, I mean, the court is presented as that in life and hence also in these kinds of movies. Like, And um, I thought that this, the fact that this movie, whether just due to when it was made, does not end on any such upbeat note so that when we watch it today, we are just left with this idea, with this uncertainty of what will happen to this sixth boy and the fact that five of them lost such a huge chunk of their lives, it really gives you a sense of deep cynicism, you know, about any systems being built to function correctly. It was significant for us to also think about who made this film. The fact that this is, you know, this is a a, a, a black filmmaker working within not just um, like an independent arts tradition and so central to the black arts movement in New York, but also a black radical tradition. I mean, he, you know, he's a person who is in conversation and um, community with James Baldwin and others. And, and the sort of, I think, I think that shows up in the film. I mean, the other thing is that both this film and the other film that we showed Devika uh, frame up are, are made out of outrage because people are in prison who absolutely shouldn't be and who were framed. Um, and so I think that that is part of the work of the film is a kind of just a cry against the system that would do this. And that does this by this is what it is set up, in fact, to do, as you said, like this is, in fact, the system working as it is intended. I mean, Martin Sostre, um, who is, uh, you know, the protagonist of Frame Up, was jailed twice on false drug charges and he spent nearly 20 years in prison, most of it in solitary confinement. And the film also ends um, at a, in a note of, of just uh, absolute outrage because he's still in prison. Um, so um, I, I think you're, you're right to kind of point to the need for irresolution in our media and for release not to for release or conviction which is often the two forms of true crime that we encounter these days you know either put these people in jail who belong there or get these people out of jail who don't belong in there but i think we need different kinds of narratives and then punish those i mean it's like and then like put the other people in jail who who did you know who messed this up and it's like this yeah Right. I mean, and the one constant there is is jail <laughs> and and the idea that some people belong in it and some people belong outside it. And so we I think one thing we really wanted to do was to show uh, show films that ask us to see prisons differently, which is something that that Brett has been trying to think about ever since she made her film, The Prison in Twelve Landscapes, is to say, how do we kind of detach ourselves from these narratives and these images that actually make us see and expect narratives that that reproduce the prison and the rationales for it? We could go full circle and maybe talk a little bit about the other big Hollywood film, Dog Day Afternoon. Why did you choose this film? Go ahead. I mean, can I say can I say one thing about I mean, I feel like Pooja might have more to say about Dog Day Afternoon. But for me, and it, it's not, you know, it's a, it's its own problematic film. There's lots of, you know, we were considering sort of like, do we want to have a panel discussion after that film, for example, and unpack some of it. But for me, the sort of core scene of that film that makes it both 
relevant to the series, but also offers yet another perspective, which is not, which is the perspective that um, these films don't just um, represent um, narratives about cops, but they also absorb um, narratives about, about policing and prisons, including, you know, protests. So there's a, a core scene that I think everyone will remember from Dog Day Afternoon, in which Al Pacino, you know, is like um, having a standoff with the with the with the police, and he just yells over and over and over again, Attica, 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 Attica. To rile up all the people. Or all to the rile up all of the people. And it's just this remarkable moment in which you're like this real life event, you know, the uprising at Attica prison that was, you know, then um, resulted in the state sanctioned murder of over 40 prisoners and a few guards um, ordered by Rockefeller. Um, it is invoked as a cultural moment, as a moment that didn't just have implications for that one, you know, that one institution, but that was part of the cultural zeitgeist of the time. And that had the power of, you know, riling people up because it was it was caused for such outrage among the general population. And I just think that that's such a remarkable scene in terms of thinking about like what's going on in our in our in our jails and our prisons and our courtrooms is actually also cultural material that then gets written into scripts and refracted through even our Hollywood, you know, our, our big Hollywood movies. I remember seeing that for the first time I was seeing the film. I had never, I didn't know what Attica was, but you know, and hadn't heard it referenced elsewhere. So I think it's kind of still, I think people see that movie and are like, what, wait, is he, what is he talking about? Because people don't talk about, that no but they would have then right like that's they why i can get been. away that sure, scene sure. has is so, so powerful you know and it is that's that's sort of interesting that 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 meaning has sort of been lost and people it becomes sort of indecipherable i'll just say one other thing i mean i uh, i mean there's there's a lot to say about this film and i'll just say one other thing which is that um you know this is a complicated film in, in many ways and we really had pause about showing it because of its gender politics its casting politics you know as cis actors cast in a in in a as a as a trans person and um, this is a very kind of classic trope of of hollywood of all time but particularly of that time i mean and you know sam fair's uh, disclosure has a lot to say about this film um but you know we wanted to show it because in a very simple way it makes the point that um police banks private capital uh, represent a theft of sexual freedom. And that is what this heist is about. It's, it's a heist, which to be sure, you know, like the kind of reason for kind of framing, <laughs> the, the the very reason for the heist is this gender affirmation surgery for Al Pacino's girlfriend. And of course, then there is this kind of reduction of this transgender character to to, to, to a kind of transition narrative. It's, it's messy. It's awful. We don't want to get behind that. But at the same time, it's kind of difficult to look away from the very simple politics of the film, which is about a re, uh, a redistribution of resources. And so for that reason, and I think for some of the reasons that you and, and Brett mentioned, we, we thought, you know, this, this is one, this is one of the films that it makes sense to program, um, in this. And, and then those, those questions also get picked up in the program, um, with Blowing Up and, um, Tourmaline's film Salacia, which, um, is this really kind of incredible speculative portrait of a black trans, um, sex worker living in, um, a free black community, which was demolished to make way for Central Park. Well, we will continue this conversation more broadly speaking. Uh, the conversation about 
<laughs> propaganda, but um, I think you guys need to need to get over to BAM for your closing night and remind us what the closing night film is of the series. The closing night film of the series is St. Clair Bourne's uh, absolutely luminescent film, uh, Making Do the Right Thing. It plays at 7 p.m. at BAM, um, November 7th, 2022. And it's playing with a 1965 film untitled Bed-Stuy Youth in Action Faction Show, which is just six minutes long, but feels more impactful than that. And I want to attribute our wonderful friend Jason at uh, Jason Livingston, who is at um, um, doing his PhD at SUNY Buffalo, because he's the one who came up with that provocation. And we did a wonderful roundtable conversation with him and many other good people at a conference recently. And so I, I, I want to make sure to kind of give him a shout out for that. Okay, thank you for thank you for citing yeah. citing your sources properly. <laughs> we, we know that Jason, <laughs> Jason, thank you. And thank you both so much for shedding light on this great series. And yeah, hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you guys for inviting us. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. Thank you.